Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kali. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kali, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Victor Muniz uh, to the show. Uh, thank you for coming on, Victor. I appreciate your time today. Great to be here. Awesome. Thank you, Victor. So uh, for viewers and listeners, uh, Victor is a veteran in the industry. He has uh, done a lot of uh, work as far as construction and syndicated assets go. Uh, originally, uh, through the uh, professional career in the semiconductor industry, he has a varied background through that, and he decided to jump into real estate. So in your own words, Victor, uh, give us your bio as to, uh, you know, sort of your experiences in your professional industry and how you came around uh, into full-fledged into uh, real estate for that matter? Well, certainly my path into the world of real estate investing and development was probably not the typical career path. Uh, I started my career as a microprocessor designer, trained as an electrical engineer, building processors for telecom applications initially, and then increasingly for a very wide array of applications. So for example, I've got some of the support chips that sit around a microprocessor in all kinds of applications, everything from uh, Hewlett Packard storage networks to brocade fiber channel switches to, uh, I've even got a chip in the Patriot missile. I mean, I've got chips in all kinds of hundreds and hundreds of different applications. If you've flown, for example, on an Airbus aircraft, the seatback hmm. display that shows the movies, uh, that's made by a French company called Talus, and that's the Talus 4400 system uh, with my microprocessor in it. So again, just hundreds and hundreds of applications all over the sure. world. Mm -hmm. And around 2008, 2009, I was working on building a new cellular network in Japan with uh, with a carrier there. And I was traveling back and forth to Tokyo every couple of weeks. And it was burning me out physically, emotionally. And we were, of course, in the midst of the post-2008 economic meltdown in the U.S. Sure. Mm -hmm. And I saw really an opportunity of a lifetime. I said, you know, let me get out of this and go do something different. And I mm -hmm. took a hard left turn and got into the world of real estate investing on a full-time basis back in 2009. Interesting. Now, going from such a high-tech career, Victor, uh, all the way into real estate, how was that sort of the hard left transition as you described? Was that through perhaps doing some little bit of uh, real estate, maybe like uh, fixing up houses or doing some of that work initially or you kind of maybe took on a mentor and you try to get into construction as you are now. How did that come about? I started out doing smaller projects and I kind of started at the bottom like a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. And I didn't take a real estate approach to things. I took more of a business approach. So the very first project I did, I live in Ottawa, Canada, our mm -hmm. nation's capital. And uh, we have a number of folks coming through the city that are on a temporary basis, parliamentary staff, embassy staff, military officers, and so on. Sure. And this was in the days before Airbnb. So what they needed was a fully furnished turnkey apartment 
within walking distance of Parliament sure. that uh, that met their housing allowance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they could go to a sweet hotel and spend thirty five hundred a month, but that was well above their housing allowance. Sure. So if I knew what the price point was, I knew what the answer was, and if I could deliver a product at that price point, mm-hmm. um, then then I had a very good business, and that's where I started. Sure. So it was very pragmatic, very practical approach. Now that was a good business; that wasn't a great business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then post two thousand nine, I saw much more opportunity in the U.S. to buy properties at far below construction cost, and that's where I turned my focus. So we didn't start out building. Because it didn't make any sense. You could buy, mm. buy things below construction cost. Sure, sure. Mm. Right? And, it took, now, it, and I, I agree with your sentiment there, Victor, as you were saying that I think you can reverse engineer what the end product would be yeah. and then kind of try to uh, focus your strategy or device or methodology to deliver that. I think that gives you, and I think your comment about in the post uh, 2008 or uh, 9 that recession i mean there was i mean the market was so sort of uh, messed up at the time that i mean you could see a uh, i mean you can buy assets well below construction costs i, I can echo that sentiment for sure right. Uh, right. but go ahead with your thought what you were saying uh, victor so you know fast forward a few years we ended up buying a, a number of properties in bulk uh, we started doing some work in chicago on the south side that didn't turn out to be the best move um, because one of the things that I learned in the process is that your clients actually have the money. Mm-hmm. And if you are to accumulate wealth, the money has to transfer from them to you. Sure. Mm-hmm. But if your clients are broke, then the whole system breaks down. Sure. sure. So if you go into neighborhoods that are economically depressed um, sure. and there just isn't the income and jobs in those neighborhoods to support it. Yes, the properties are cheap, and they look good in a spreadsheet, but they don't real—they don't look so great in real life. Sure, 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 sure. So we started moving up market. We started finding opportunities in Philadelphia. Developed some very strong relationships there, and developed a strategy that we call "buy on the line, move the line." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that line exists in every city in America. Sure, mm-hmm. it's that line between the hot neighborhood with the coffee shops and the art galleries, and you go two blocks too far and you're in the hood. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you find those situations, if you buy properties distressed on the wrong side of the line, assuming that line is arbitrary, sure. if the line's a municipal boundary, if it's a freeway or a railway line, that's a harder line to move. But in a lot of cases, that line is arbitrary. Sure. And just sure. for whatever reason, this block has been really rough and this other block you know, a block away has been really nice. Sure, sure. You can move that line by redeveloping on the wrong side of the line. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And I think the key aspect, as you said, is that buying that sort of on the line and moving the line requires some scale. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, as we are speaking here, this is not something, hey, you're buying one or two houses. This is a major development that you would do so that you create that impact and you pretty much move the line, uh, as you call it. I, I like that term. Never heard of them saying that, you know, buy on the line or buy the line and move the line. So uh, what is your experience, uh, Victor? I, I think I, I also echo that comment where you said that your end consumer or your sort of your end tenant, uh, for that matter, if, if the city and hence uh, the whole economic depression around that area is there, it's not going to be a great investment for not only for you, but for the entire uh, team of investors and things like that, right? So speaking of that, uh, Victor, uh, what were your challenges? Like, 
meaning how did you come out of it and perhaps uh, how did that focus shift into what you are doing today, for example? My focus today is on doing projects with the very best people always, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it doesn't matter how good a deal you have on paper, a, be a good deal poorly managed, of course, is no deal. Sure. So the only differentiator in that equation is not the deal, but the management. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that what's the caliber of the people that are on your team. And so I'm always looking to upgrade relationships to bring stronger people into the team. Uh, if if something's not working, one of two things, you maybe have the wrong person in the wrong chair, mm -hmm. or we have a particular function that should be staffed and isn't. Um, the, almost all problems can be traced down to one of those couple of root causes. You know, you, if you say, well, nobody checked the quality on this particular item, mm -hmm. say, well, whose job was it to check the quality? And if nobody puts up their hand, you found the problem. Sure. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And, and, or if, or if, uh, someone says, well, it's everyone's responsibility. Well, that's, that's nobody's responsibility. Right. That's too vague <laughs> at that point. <laughs> so it, it has to be, you have to be able to point to say, okay, that person, that's their job, and and okay, maybe they maybe they they messed up, mm -hmm. and you can have a conversation around that, but at least it's clear where the responsibility lies, and you can remediate the issue. Sure, sure. Right. Now, Victor, coming to some of the tangibles, for example, uh, you are a uh, you know uh, let's say an electrical engineer deeply yeah. into semiconductor industry and things like that. Now, when you make the shift into construction industry. What were some of the key, uh, you know, people that you surrounded with, or perhaps what are some of the key alliances one should have uh, if we were to, you know, look into, uh, let's say, going into construction aspect of uh, the business? What, what what are some of your experiences that give me like uh, give us some, uh, some like you know maybe uh, top four or five things that you have to have. And perhaps uh, another thing on the same token, Victor, would be is that let's say you move into a new area, you know, maybe I'll take that question after you answer the first one. Perhaps. Well, here's the thing. If I could do what I want to do without having to build new, I would rather do that. Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm, almost everyone who goes into construction does that as a last resort mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because there's more risk. There's more work. There's a lot more moving parts. It's more difficult. Mm -hmm. It's more time consuming. Mm -hmm. It has the advantage, though that in today's environment where there's too much money chasing too few opportunities, I mean, think about it. If a 400-unit apartment complex comes on the open market today, mm -hmm. there'll be a dozen bids or 20 bids on that project. Sure. Mm -hmm. If you're the winning bidder, you're almost guaranteed to have paid too much. Sure. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to get out of that auction environment. Mm -hmm. And the best way to get out of that auction environment is to be a bidder of one. And the only way you're a bidder of one is if you're competing with other people for an idea that's strictly in your own mind and is not out there on the internet saying, I'm a deal, come and get me. Sure, sure, sure. And it, it almost goes back to the thesis that, hey, as you pretty much described, it, this is the same exact conversation I was having with few of our partners saying, if there is a, a B or C class deal, there are hundreds of people you know trying to get in the door. But if we are looking at a... Uh, sort of a new construction development is this perhaps only a very few subset of people who are looking at it and perhaps that's our distinguishing factor that you can go in and uh, you know do what you want to do but going back to uh, uh, 
you, you know, some of these things, uh, Victor, when you look at it from a team standpoint, yep. what are some of the key relations you find that you have to have? Uh, number one, you've got to have uh, outstanding capital partners. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to have people with very good construction experience. You know, when a lender is going to lend you, I don't know, pick a number, $30 million sure. for a construction loan, uh, they want to know, you know, if if you mess up, yeah, you might sign a personal guarantee and we'd rather even not do that. They might come after you personally, but if it, it their money is most secure not based on anyone's balance sheet, but based on someone's track record and experience sure. managing projects of that type. So they want to know that the people that are doing this mm-hmm. have that experience. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. For example, a project that I'm doing here in Ottawa, Canada, um, you know, one of my partners on this project is one of the premier builders in our home city. He's built thousands and thousands of units. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My partner on a lot of these U.S. projects mm-hmm. has built 10,000 units so far in his career. Sure. It's mm-hmm. going to take a little while for me to catch up to him. Sure, sure, sure. So when the lender looks, says, well, show us your development resume. Well, I I push his resume to the front. Sure, sure, sure. Um, sure. You know, so that makes that makes all the difference. Awesome, awesome. It's the yeah. power of the team that pushes the whole team forward. Absolutely. For sure. Awesome. Awesome. Now, speaking of, uh, you know, the project specifics, Victor, for example, what are some of the things you look for in a uh, sort of in an asset? Uh, let's start with, you know, what that sub market looks like. And then what are some of the elements uh, that you look for in on a site, I should say, uh, that kind of start to appeal you and say that, hey, this might be something interesting that we could for, take a further look at it. I'm looking for demographics. I'm looking for jobs. I'm looking for population growth. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I want cities that are experiencing that influx of population mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. I, you know, I want to see the, the 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 draw of employment for sure. I want to see a mismatch between demand and supply, more demand than supply, sure. and I want to see things that are holding back the supply because eventually, in any attractive market it'll get oversupplied. We've seen it in Seattle. We've seen it in New York City. uh, We've seen it in Miami a couple of times. Mm -hmm. You know, money starts chasing these opportunities and gets ahead of itself. Sure. So Mm -hmm. you don't want to end up on the wrong side of history with that situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you want that mismatch between demand and supply. You want uh, strong uh, fundamentals. You want to make sure that there's a margin, a profit margin. If you can build at say today, $130 a square foot, that you can sell that in the open market for double that. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, or get it valued at something substantially Close above that. that. Right, 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 right. So you're looking for all those fundamentals. Mm-hmm. And if they're not there, if even one of them is missing, you don't do it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, now, on the similar topic, Victor, uh, how do you control some of the risk in that? Like, uh, you know, you have uh, sort of a, uh, you know, let's pick a number, like, you know, you have a project that spans for, let's say, two uh, two year as far as, you know, 18 months to a, a couple of years as far as the core construction goes. What are some of the top risks uh, in your mind that you're kind of weighing uh, as you execute some of these projects? Oh, how much time do we have? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> that will be a podcast in itself, you say. <laughs> Yeah, there's there's obviously a number of things that can happen. I mean, who would have predicted that we would be 
uh, facing a global pandemic. And, oh, sure. Mm -hmm. You know, so in, in, in 2020 and 2021, most people have a much more sanguine uh, perspective on risk than they might have two years earlier. Sure. Where they said, no, no, the you know, the economy's going gangbusters, you know, unemployment's at 5% and everything, the world is great. Yeah, it's just going to fly. <laughs> right? Exactly. So, you know, 2020's taught everybody an awful lot about even some of the things that can go wrong, even in an otherwise safe environment. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, countering that, of course, we have still a tremendous amount of liquidity in the market, mm -hmm. a lot of cash available. Uh, the thing that where people get into trouble is if they have projects that are undercapitalized mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and they just nothing wrong with the project. They just ran out of cash because they didn't budget properly. Sure. That's mm -hmm. hard to fix. Sure. Sure. Unless sure. you recapitalize a project. Um, you can have economic situations change. Mm hmm. If you are in a community that is heavily tied uh, to, let's say, the price of a particular commodity, mm -hmm. copper, gold, oil, whatever, mm -hmm. and that community lives and dies on the price of that commodity, well, you've got some risk. Sure, sure. Right? It's a so, one-trick pony that can go dead real quick. It, yeah, exactly. You know, So, for example, would I invest in certain smaller communities in North Dakota? Sure. Mm -hmm. Probably not. Right, right, right. You know, because they're very much upstream and they're sensitive to the price of crude oil. Sure. Would mm -hmm. I do something in the energy corridor along the Gulf Coast where it's all midstream and downstream refining distribution and all the rest? That feels safer to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so it, 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 it all depends. You just got to look at those economic fundamentals. And of course, real estate is always is hyper local. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Uh, now, speaking of these projects, Victor, uh, do you typically go with uh, land development from ground up or, uh, you know, meaning you're, you know, acquiring a blank uh, piece of land and rezoning and things like that, that in itself, uh, you know, adds, uh, let's say, a couple of years uh, to your life cycle? Or is your preferred way of buying is that, hey, something is already zoned, uh, sort of shovel ready for lack of a better word? and then use uh, a kind of you're on the racing track, so to speak, at that point. What are some of your considerations when you take uh, something, uh, some of these sites for acquisition? Depends on the community. I mean, some communities that have a long entitlement cycle, <laughs> I, you know, I want to take some of that risk out. The analogy that I use sometimes, and you see this often in high value markets, where someone has a particular property that's zoned for its current use, <laughs> might be a single family home. Sure. But in the municipal plan overlay, the city's designated that maybe you, they might approve higher density in the future. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then the landowner says, well, I'm going to sell this at a premium because I know that the buyer is going to put, a, you know, a tower on top of this single family home. Sure. Mm -hmm. But they never went through the effort to get the zoning changed. Sure. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you the question. Would you if you went to the grocery store? and you bought a chicken versus an egg, mm -hmm. are they mm -hmm. worth the same? 
Right, right. No, mm-hmm. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, it, it throws a lot of variables into it. I mean, of course, on the surface, it looks like, yes, it is. Uh, I mean, it has a potential, but sometimes the potential is the potential until you realize it, about, perhaps, you know. <laughs> right, right. So there's a lot of distortions where people will try and price the egg as a chicken. Sure. But mm-hmm. it's not a chicken yet, and you don't know if the egg's going to hatch and all of that. Right, right. So, you know, those are some of the risks. Mm-hmm. And the, the reward goes to the folks that do the heavy lifting and do the work. Sure. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go to the folks that are just speculators. Right, 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 right. So uh, are you saying then, uh, Victor, is that the preferred way perhaps is to maybe acquire something that's already zoned for something so that you kind of eliminate that risk and you're mostly going uh, on with your uh, sort of plans and vision for what you We want would to prefer do. to do that. But uh, if I look at, you know, the vast majority of the projects that we have going on right now, Almost, I'd say three quarters of them have a zoning application as part of the process. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. I'd rather we didn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes it's not even a zoning change. Sometimes it is within the zoning that's currently on the property, but because of the scale of the project, mm-hmm. you have to do what's called a planned use development. Sure. Which mm-hmm. is almost equivalent to doing a zoning over the entire project. Over the entire project. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, it's it's almost exactly the same process. You go through the same approval process for a planned use development that you pretty much do for zoning. Sure, sure. Now, coming back to some of the nuts and bolts of uh, the capital uh, aspects of these, uh, Victor. Uh, let's start maybe step by step as far as how you would uh, first off structure these deals uh, or, or maybe let me take a step back like when you are acquiring this you know obviously the construction and the end exit is years away uh, so give us a sense of how you're structuring these deals uh, from a uh, sort of a, d- a deal standpoint that is it something uh, I mean you know I know in the multifamily world how we do it but from a construction side, what are some of the typical ways of how you do this? Well, there's two parts to this. I mean, the first is the construction and then there's the actual, you know, the equity investment and what does that look like from the investor standpoint? <laughs> so typically you're gonna have two phases of your financing. The first that governs your construction and then your permanent financing. <laughs> Sometimes you'll get the same lender to do a construction loan that will convert to permanent. Permanent, correct. Um, <laughs> but often they're separated. <laughs> We're not huge fans of signing recourse debt, meaning we're not huge fans of signing personal guarantees. And to get non-recourse construction loans is a little bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. Not many lenders will do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So sometimes you end up paying a little bit more for that because the lender is taking a bit more risk. It also means that they're going to be not going to be willing to lend at that higher ratio. So they may only lend at 70 or 75% loan to cost. Sure. Whereas mm-hmm. in permanent, in the world of permanent financing, you might get a lender that's willing to lend at 75 or 80% loan to value, which is which much, is a much big, higher number. Big difference, right. Mm-hmm. Right. So we may sometimes, for example, uh, finance the construction using a conventional construction loan, non-recourse construction loan. Mm-hmm. at maybe 75% loan to cost. And then we may refinance maybe with a HUD product like a 223F product mm-hmm. or an agency loan like Fannie or Freddie uh, at a much higher ratio. Uh, and and that's permanent financing, of course, at a much lower rate. We can often, of course, not only repay the original construction loan out of that refined or permanent financing, we can often pay back at least a portion, sometimes even all, 
of the equity investment. Mm-hmm. Do a full cash out refi uh, when we convert into permanent financing. That is the goal. Sure, sure. We want to get the investors their money back and use that refinance as an interim exit so that we get all of our chips off the table and we're still holding a, a you know, nice brand new quality producing asset that is at a reasonable equity ratio, but with no cash tied up in it. Sure, sure. Now, Victor, as far as uh, structuring the deal, I mean, uh, thank you for clarifying the, you know, sort of the uh, the financing part of it. But let's say if we were to involve investors into this deal, what, what does that look like? Like what sort of uh, prep, if any, or perhaps what sort of uh, split uh, we are offering in general? It, it, I don't want to get into details because we're not here soliciting for anything. And sure, I certainly sure. don't want to be perceived as that. Right, right. Uh, but what we do is, you know, we'll typically have one class of shares for the deal sponsors, mm-hmm. a separate class of shares for the limited partners uh, that are investing in the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will often put in a preferred return and sure. that preferred return is there against the invested capital. And so a, a simple way to think about mm-hmm. that preferred return is I'm going to use a little bit of a different terminology. Uh, imagine for the moment, if you had a convertible note, a convertible loan, mm-hmm. where at the beginning of the project, that loan appears like a debt instrument. It's got an interest rate attached to it. Mm-hmm. And then on refinance, that loan converts from being a loan to equity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so now you've got equity, the interest rate disappears, because now you've got cash flow. And what that does creates a mechanism whereby during your construction phase, during that period where you didn't have income in the project, there Mm -hmm. was still income flowing back to the investors. They get all or most of their money back on conversion to equity. And then they're still holding their equity position in the deal. Sure. and getting cash flow for a very maybe small amount of uh, cash left in the deal. Sure. So that's mm-hmm. typically the structure we like to use. Some Something along that kind of theme mm-hmm. is uh, is the way we approach it. I see. Now, speaking of, uh, you know, uh, like construction of this, uh, Victor, uh, you know, we know that you have a class A construction that's completely, uh, you know, luxury style decked out with, let's say, granite glass and things like that, right? Uh, but, you know, you have the lower uh, set of construction, uh, which could be, you know, perhaps uh, just a modest construction, uh, you know, looks great. Uh, it's a livable, it's uh, clean, works functionally great and things like that. So my question to you, Victor, is that when you are analyzing the project and things like that, what what sort of uh, uh, factors go into evaluating that, hey, what class of construction you're going to do? The difference in construction cost between class A and class B is only a couple of percentage points. Interesting. Because, mm-hmm. because uh, the only thing that varies from one to the next are your finishes. Mm-hmm. It's a sure. very small percentage. Sure, sure. Good. So, but the difference in rent between class A and class B is more than a couple of percentage points which sure. is why almost everybody that's building today is building class A. Sure. Mm-hmm. Cuz it sense. wouldn't make sense to build class B. Sure, sure. Makes sense. Right. Makes sense. And I guess I assume that's all dictated by what's happening in the current uh, sort of area around and things like that if we can support higher class A, let's stick to class A. Well, would that would that be a uh, yeah. correct statement? Yeah. Yeah, you want to go into areas where there is the income, the demand to support those rents. Now, if you get into properties that are too expensive, then you can get upside down because you're really competing with folks 
that might come and rent for you for a time being, but they're ultimately going to buy. Sure. Right. So if they're going to disappear and go buy their own house in a year, then you've got a high turnover class A project. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's one that's probably not going to meet your your stated uh, forecast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, and, and now speaking of all this, uh, Victor, I know like in the multifamily sector, we say that uh, there's just so much competition going on as far as what's happening. And, uh, you know, just, just so many buyers and things like that. Uh, from a uh, so from a ground up construction uh, standpoint, is it similar, Victor, that you see a lot of competition, uh, or is it more uh, modest as compared to a typical uh, multifamily or self storage deals? It depends. Um, it depends on the area. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's areas where there's very little developable land left, you often see a bit of a feeding frenzy around land. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that in a number of submarkets where there's very little industrial land left. So those few parcels of industrial land um, are kind of in that auction environment, even though nothing's been built on them yet. Sure. Uh, so it, it just depends on the dynamics of that lo local submarket. Sure, sure. And any pieces of data uh, or websites or anything you want to share, Victor, that viewers can take uh, uh, you know, advantage of, like, hey, go check this report or perhaps check this website before you look into some of these sites? What I find is that the majority of the data that's out there in the public domain, most of it tends to be um, very general in nature, mm -hmm. where they talk about the averages, and the averages don't exist in reality. Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're just the averages over. You know, it's like saying, "What's the average age in America?" Well, what's that have to do with you? <laughs> you know, right. uh, it, it's not useful. Sure. 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 So. Uh, what I find is that the, a lot of those reports just are not that helpful. Sure. And they don't pertain to your hyper-local situation. Sure, sure. You can have a downturn in the economy, but your local economy could be running in the opposite direction. Very true. Mm, right? Very true. You think about cities, let me compare two cities just at, at random. Let's say, let's pick San Francisco and Austin, Texas. Sure. Mm-hmm. San Francisco, rents have fallen 25, 30%. People have left the city in droves. Sure. Mm -hmm. Austin's attracting a ton of population. A lot of people from the West Coast. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So is that COVID? Is that, like, what, what is that? Sure. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, the economies are hyperlocal. True, true. Right. Hyperlocal is the operative word. Uh, yeah. I think uh, you rightfully said, uh, and I appreciate that comment, uh, Victor, where I think reports give you a general sense, but I think to get the pulse of the market, it's really that hyperlocal, knowing what's exactly going on there, perhaps maybe brokers are a great source to tell that, hey, such and such companies have moved in and this is the demand we expect and things like that. So hyperlocal, getting to know that uh, exact environment is is kind of the uh, you know operative word right there. So right. Uh, thank you, Victor. A uh, couple of last uh, quick questions. Uh, in your storied career, you have uh, networked with so many folks. Uh, I know you are a, uh, you know, uh, sort of a featured uh, uh, speaker all the time on various uh, channels and, uh, and stages and things like that. Uh, so my uh, question to you, Victor, is that 
what are some of the best advice you try to remember all the time uh, that kind of keeps you in check, uh, you know, as you execute your daily activities? You know, what are some of the uh, key pieces that stand out to you? Uh, I would say, number one, uh, I tend to focus, you know, I just focus on getting the projects done and getting them staffed. Um, that's probably the number one thing. Uh, I focus on saying no to things that are going to be a distraction mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, making sure that we've got as many folks in our team engaged and running with, uh, with big meaty things that need to get done so that we get these projects over the finish line, get them leased, get them built. Uh, it is, it's the process. It's the daily grind of executing the projects and you know we don't take a ton of time to um, you know hold big celebrations you know we signed a contract today with the u.s government um, for a little over half a million dollars um, mm -hmm. you know we're okay we haven't even celebrated that we're not even gonna it's just okay on to the next thing you know sure sure so sure. it's it's really all about execution sure mm -hmm. um, and and that's really the joy. You've got to love the journey. If you don't love the journey, um, then don't do it. You know, <laughs> love that. Love that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think keeping eye on the ball and not getting overexcited, just uh, keep the traction and the friction going and, uh, you know, love the journey. So I appreciate it, Victor. For viewers and listeners, uh, kindly share, uh, you know, how they can find you and learn more about your company and everything that you have uh, going on around you. Well, probably the best way to connect, um, I'm the host of the Real Estate Espresso podcast. This is a daily show seven days a week Awesome. Uh, mm -hmm. where we talk about literally what's new in the world of real estate investing on a daily basis. And uh, so we've got a, a large and growing and loyal listener base. Uh, we have some amazing guests on the show, uh, on the weekday show. It's just me, five minutes, and the mm -hmm. weekend edition our interviews with notable notable people from the world of real estate investing. And so that's an awful lot of fun. It's a great way to connect with me and learn a little bit more about what we're doing. And it's really pure education about what's happening in the world of investing. And if they want to get in touch directly, uh, reach out to me directly at victorjm.com. That's my website, victorjm.com. And uh, thank you for having me. Awesome. Awesome. So few, for viewers and listeners, that's Real Estate uh, Expresso podcast with uh, Victor. Uh, please log in and check him out. Uh, I have personally been benefited and some of the featured stars, you would probably see them on TV and things like that. So uh, it is a great source of information. Uh, thank you, Victor. It is a great episode. I'm personally going to uh, rewind and rewatch uh, some of the nuggets that you said are uh, very much priceless. I think uh, I like to always say that uh, when veteran guests uh, who have such experience come on, uh, I think the knowledge is in the sentences and that you kind of can, you know, listen in and break down and reverse engineer what that means and sort of extrapolate uh, to your experience, to your uh, sort of uh, applicable, uh, you know, situation. So I appreciate your time. So thank you for coming on. Uh, for viewers and listeners, please log on to uh, premiumcashflow.com where guests like Victor uh, and many others uh, come on, share their uh, valuable experience and advice. Uh, so it is a pleasure and uh, thank you for coming on perfect
Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest. Thank you.